Something I want to uh, bring to your attention, something that I need your help. Hey, guys. This is our Steamboat Campus from Sanctuary. It's good to see you guys. Hi. We have a number of campuses around the country. You may not know this. Um, People who uh, are former sanctuarians that move to other parts of the country, and they just become our campuses all over. So we've got Chico covered. We've got Steamboat. People all over the place. It's really good to see you. Um, Something that we want to make you aware of, something that I need your help with. Um, Tomorrow, we, or maybe sometime this week, we have, uh, we've found a place that we're pretty interested in, Um, a place that might work really well for Sanctuary to meet and to gather to worship, and it's a long shot, (laughs) uh, to say the least. Um, And so I'm just really here asking if you guys would join us in prayer this week. Um, It might be a really cool opportunity for us. It may just fall flat and nothing happen, and then we just move on to the next thing, and that's okay too. But uh, yeah, join us in prayer this week, and we we would love if this thing could all materialize for us, but if not, that's okay too. Again, the, uh, the place that we're looking at, if you could draw a circle around Tulsa Metro and basically drop uh, a pin like on the bullseye, like the dead center of Tulsa, that's basically where it's located, around where Highway 44 cuts across Yale. Are you with me? There's, uh, there's a Best Buy near. Uh, there's also a Cane's Chicken, depending on uh, what kind of things you're familiar with. I don't know what you people eat. Um, <laughs> There's a jack-in-the-box. There's uh, all kinds of stuff. There's a world market. So, what'd you say? Yeah, the world market, like, really, yeah, rang a bell. Okay. So, just be praying with us. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, again, it, it does feel like a little bit of a, a long shot, but, I mean, hey, who knows? Let's, let's ask and see what happens, and maybe God blesses us with a beautiful building that's the right size and the right amount of money, and we can do all the kinds of things that we need to do as a community. Cool. Okay. Um, There are a few characters that I want to draw our attention to today. This text that we just read obviously emphasizes Mary, emphasizes Elizabeth, and the person of Zechariah as well. If uh, calling Mary the mother of God freaks you out at all, let me try to put some of that to rest. I know some of us grew up in communities where when we talked about Mary, the, the, the best we would do is maybe call her the mother of Jesus. And calling Mary the mother of Jesus kind of softens it, right? Like it, 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 it grounds her in her humanity and doesn't do much else. But when we talk about Mary as the mother of God, we're really saying more about Jesus than we are about Mary. That to to announce that she is the mother of God is to affirm Christ's humanity, is to say that Jesus did, in fact, have a mother, humanly mother, who gives birth to Jesus. But then to say that Mary is the mother of God is to affirm Jesus' divinity. And so, again, in this statement, when we talk about Mary as the mother of God, we're saying infinitely more about who Jesus is than any kind of claim that we're making about Mary. Make sense? So, for some of us, again, depending on who we are and the kind of communities we were raised in, 
some of this is a little uncomfortable for us. But what we emphasize today is Mary and her visiting Elizabeth. If you don't know who Elizabeth is, here's just a little bit of background. Elizabeth is married to Zechariah, and Zechariah is a priest. And we are told very little about Zechariah other than a few things. One, we know his vocation. Again, he's a priest. We also know that Elizabeth is from this same priestly tribe that Zechariah belongs to. And we also are aware of their inability to have children. Earlier in this story, Zechariah, he is struck mute. God prevents him from saying anything when he doubts God's word that God will actually give this couple a son in their old age. So Zechariah becomes for us this great example of this pious, powerful person who God uses. And God uses him precisely by shutting him up. Some of you are thinking about someone you wish God would start using right about now. Maybe you wish God would start using me in this moment. Esau Macaulay, he's an Anglican priest, he points out that Zechariah and Elizabeth, we can think about them like a ministry family, right? This is a couple who's doing the work of the Lord, and they're doing it among an oppressed people. This is the life that they're leading. And these are people who are now tasked with making theological sense of God's apparent absence in their midst, to make sense of the oppression that they find themselves in. And so they would have faced a lot of the kinds of questions that many of our black brothers and sisters, the black pastors, have had to deal with in the United States for generations. They would have to deal with questions like, where is God? Why hasn't God saved us? Does God care about our suffering? And Macaulay goes on to say that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they live with both the, the national and personal tragedy. That in their bodies, they're personifying the kind of brokenness, not just that they experience in their barrenness, but the brokenness that they feel as a corporate people of God living in oppression. They bear all of that in their physical bodies. And this is who Elizabeth and Zechariah are. And this is the house that Mary flees to, that she rushes to when she receives this word from the angel that she is to bear this child, to bear up this promise. Mary receives this news and it completely turns her world upside down. And her instinct, her right instinct, is to travel, is to rush toward an older, wiser person to this house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the text tells us that as soon as Mary arrives and Elizabeth hears her greeting, that the child inside of Elizabeth, John the Baptist, leaps in her womb and she, filled with the Holy Spirit, immediately says to Mary, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Remember, Mary is the young one. Mary's the unsuspecting one who has just heard this news that she knows she can't really share with anyone. Who's going to believe her? <laughs> she can't tell Joseph. She can't tell her friends. Again, who would believe this word that she's just received? But her instinct 
is to go to the wisest, to the most loving people that she knows. And she enters their house, and all she does is greet them. And whatever this greeting is, we're not told exactly what she said, but it was a greeting, right? It was probably something like, Elizabeth, it's me, Mary. <laughs> like, how moving can greetings possibly be? Like, when was the last time you answered the phone and the person on the other side of the line, like, was filled with the Holy Spirit <laughs> as a result of your, like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> but the power for Mary, the power wasn't in her greeting. It wasn't in the words that she spoke to Elizabeth. She was the one who was bearing the God of the universe inside of her. So her greeting is now carried by the full depth of humanity to the point that Elizabeth's own body responds to it, leaps for joy. And it's in that moment that Elizabeth realizes Mary has come to her in need of something. Mary has come to her looking for something, some word of reassurance. But what happens is that in coming to Elizabeth, in need of a blessing, Mary is the one who blesses Elizabeth. This dramatic reversal of roles, this young person coming to the wise one in search of a blessing, coming to her in need, and actually ending up blessing Elizabeth. This isn't what Mary was after. This isn't why she rushed to Elizabeth to bless her. She sets out with a need. She sets out with a kind of desperation, searching for something. And I imagine a great deal of uncertainty about what the future is going to look like. This is part of the tragedy of barrenness in their world. Not just the heartache of not having children, but to some degree the hope that the child that you bear might be the Messiah, might be the one that your people have been hoping for and looking for and waiting on. And here's Mary, and she's aware of all these prophecies. She is grounded in the life of the Old Testament. And then she's visited by an angel, and now she is left to make sense out of everything that she knows and everything that she's just been told. And then in her need, Elizabeth sees her, recognizes her, not just as one that's in need, but as the mother of the Lord. Elizabeth recognizes in her own body the blessing that's taking place in Mary. So here at the beginning of Luke's gospel, this is Luke chapter 1, Luke is showing us a very particular picture, a very specific image. He gives us this image of these two women. One, an older, barren, up to this point, woman. The other, a young girl, this young virgin. And what Luke is emphasizing is that when the world is not working the way that it should, <laughs> when everything that you've expected to happen isn't actually happening, and when the things that you least expected to happen start happening to you, the way God wants it to work, the world as you know it is going to be overturned in these kinds of exchanges, in these kinds of exchanges, 
Exchanges of need and blessing. Exchanging in which God's work in one another is recognized in our own bodies as joy. And what comes from us is response to God's work in the other person's life as celebration. That when people show up to us in need and they come with a kind of hard word, they're not exactly sure how to tell us about what God is doing in them, our response shouldn't be judgment. Our response shouldn't be skepticism. Our response should be one of joy and celebration. So when Mary shows up in need, she's looking for a blessing but blesses Elizabeth instead. Her response, Mary's response is a celebration, is a song of praise, the Magnificat that we heard during worship this morning. This song that Mary sings, the Magnificat, it is a revolutionary song, the song of a revolution. It's a song that announces that God is going to come and God is going to level the playing field when God arrives. That God has come and is coming to topple the thrones and the powers and the structures that we've made for ourselves. It's a song about everything God is going to tear down in our world. But it's first and foremost a song of praise. A song of celebration of the fact that God undoing the world as we've made it is in fact worth celebrating. And if we're paying attention, Mary's song should cause us to put away any kind of illusion that Mary is some kind of gentle, innocent, nearly angelic, some kind of paragon of feminism, right? This is her response. This is not rainbows and butterflies, Mary. This is God has scattered the proud in their thoughts and in their hearts, Mary, This is God has brought down the powerful from their thrones, Mary. This is God has sent the rich away empty, Mary. This is bold. This is ambitious and audacious, Mary. One who is anxious for God to come because she has been filled with the divine. And in so being filled, she can now imagine the world as it should be and not the world as we've created it to be. This is the point I want us to hear, that when God arrives on the scene, we aren't inoculated into some wistful, blissful, pillowy, peaceful kind of love potion. (laughs) This isn't some moment where we're filled with this reality of who God is and suddenly we don't see any of the problems of the world, that somehow we only see the lovely and the beautiful and the gentle things. This isn't that. God's arrival doesn't blind us in any way or distract us from reality. God's arrival actually shakes us awake from all of the dreaming and all of the heavenly speech that actually keeps us ignorant of what our neighbors are suffering. When God arrives in Mary, her response is not, well, everything's going to be fine. The response is, God is going to make the world right. And it's going to look like the powerful being brought low. It's going to look like the rich being sent away empty, the proud being scattered, 
in the thoughts of their hearts. God's arrival helps us to see more clearly, not less. The challenge is that it turns out seeing the world more clearly means becoming well acquainted with suffering. Means challenging the status quo and the way things are just because it's the way things are. Inevitably, this means that God's arrival, it doesn't settle very many questions for us. So much as God's arrival actually generates questions in us. Which leads me to the other character I want to talk about today is Doubting Thomas. This Tuesday, December 21st, is actually traditionally the feast day for Doubting Thomas. It's also my youngest daughter's first birthday. Had no idea she was born on the feast of Doubting Thomas, and now I'm a little concerned about what that means for her future. But in any way, <laughs> December 21st is coming. And think about, think about the, the, the wisdom of that in the, in the church. That we've just come through this season of Advent, leading up to the threshold of Christmas, the threshold of the announcement that Christ has come into the world. And it's in this season of waiting and preparation and longing with Christmas again right here in front of us that the church reminds us of this story of doubting Thomas. It reminds us that this whole season isn't just about a silent night, about a holy night. It's not just some quiet, beautiful moment in a stable. But even at the moment of Christ's arrival, there are still questions that need to be answered. There are still doubts that arise in us. Confusion that takes place all over the world. And it's almost ironic. Fleming Rutledge, who we've talked about a lot these past few weeks, she reminds us that Advent begins in the dark. And when you hear that, it's easy to think that, well, Advent begins in the dark, but it leads us into light. It turns out Advent starts in the dark and it just keeps getting darker. <laughs> Even as we light these candles, that what we experience is both a, a kind of literal darkness. We're, we're brushing up against the winter solstice, the shortest days of the year, the, the most limited amount of sunlight that we experience in our day but then also spiritually in the sense that we have been asking for weeks now, how long? How long? And it seems that the answer we keep getting over and over and over again is this, a little bit longer. If we're sensitive enough, and I think we are, we know that this Christmas season can be difficult for a lot of people, people dealing with family issues, some people dealing with a lack of family issues, a lack of loved ones in this season, struggling with issues of loneliness, but also for Christians generally, this is supposed to be a season that's uplifting. This is supposed to be a season that feeds our faith and lifts us up, but so often, in the midst of all of the joy and the hope and the peace and the love, some of us experience more of an absence of faith than an uplifting of our faith. So we should be truthful about what this season is and about what this season isn't. Let's look quickly at this story of, of Doubting Thomas. 
This is John, John 20. Starting in 24, for those of you following along. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. We know Thomas as Doubting Thomas. And this shouldn't be disparaging for us to call him Doubting Thomas. It's, it's, it's not an insult, right? The first time that we see Thomas in the Gospels, Jesus has decided to go up to Jerusalem. And Thomas knows that if he goes up to Jerusalem, there are people there who are planning to kill Jesus. But he says, knowing that they're going into that kind of danger, Thomas says to the other disciples, let us go with him and die with him. So Thomas is unflinching in this moment. He says, I am a follower of Jesus. If he's going to go and die, let us go and let us die with him. This is the first image we see of Thomas. And we see him again in this moment after Jesus has just given this teaching to his disciples where he says to them, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. You know the way. He says to the 12, you know the way. And then there's this kind of awkward silence when all of the disciples realized Jesus thinks we know something that we don't in fact know. He says that we know the way, but we do not know the way. And nobody wants to say anything about it. But Thomas is the one who speaks up. And he says, wait a minute. I don't know the way. You've not shown us the way. How could we know the way? Why do you assume that we know what you're talking about? And I love this picture of Thomas because it shows us that not only is he the one courageous enough to go and to die with Jesus, but he's the one courageous enough to ask the questions no one else is brave enough to ask. It's Thomas who is the one who says, you say we know, but we don't know. And I'm going to admit it when no one else wants to. So when we come to this story at the end, this story that gives us the doubt of doubting Thomas, I think it's important for us to keep in our minds this picture of courageous Thomas, this picture of the brave Thomas, willing to ask the questions no one else wants to. And then when the disciples say to Thomas, we've seen the Lord, Thomas is almost predictably skeptical. Like, I don't know. I've hung around with you guys for quite a while. Like, Peter, he called you Satan. Like, we've not gotten this right very often. <laughs> so I'm going to need to see a little more than just you telling me what you've seen and what you've experienced. A couple of things, a couple of mistakes that I think we've made as we've talked about doubt. 
One is to downplay the seriousness of doubt. It's as if we're, if we're not careful, we can actually make doubt a good in and of itself. But the other mistake that we make is to dismiss doubt as evil, something to be avoided altogether. So we put doubt on one end of this spectrum or the other, like it's some kind of inherent good or some kind of inherent evil. And both of these are mistakes. The truth is Thomas was in some ways right to doubt. Thomas Aquinas, talking about this passage of Doubting Thomas, says that Thomas was right to question the witness of the disciples. Not only because he knew the disciples, (laughs) which is a great line, (laughs) but because the scriptures say to test the spirits to see whether they are of God. And in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every truth be established. So of course, Thomas is right to say, wait a minute, I know what you're saying, but I need to see just a little bit more. Thomas's doubt is not wrong in and of itself. It's not evil, something to be avoided, but it also isn't good in and of itself. The goal for us as Christians is not to be doubters. The goal for us is to be people whose doubt actually opens up on encounters with Jesus, encounters with the one who has come near to us. And what we see in Thomas is that at some point, his doubt turns into a kind of stubbornness. Aquinas goes on and he says that the problem is not where Thomas's doubt began, but what happened to his doubt along the way. So we see that Thomas is not with the disciples that night of Easter when Jesus appears, and we don't know why. We don't know why he's not with the others. He's just not there when Jesus shows up. So when the disciples tell him what's happened, Thomas isn't sure that he wants to believe them. And this is part of the problem for us, that we read this story knowing that Thomas has doubted, reading a kind of lack of faith into the actions that Thomas is, is taking, into Thomas's heart. And then we think that part of the problem is that Thomas has distanced himself from the fellow disciples, but that's not what we see. The text goes on and it says, he's not with them when Jesus appears, but the next week they're all together and the door's closed. I love that. I love that. That even in the midst of Thomas's own doubt, that I don't know if what you're saying is actually the truth, he still shows up with them. He still gets into the room with them. That even though he has his doubts, even though he wasn't ready to actually take their word for it, he just kept showing up. He didn't cut himself off. He didn't refused to be around them, even though he had questions about their witness. And this is how we keep our doubts and our questions from becoming stubborn. A mark that our doubting has overcome us rather than opening up something in us is that we cut ourselves off from our community of faith. We turn ourselves away from other believers. The other thing that's so beautiful about this isn't just that Thomas doesn't cut them off, rather, but, but that the other disciples also don't cut off Thomas. You know and I know, we've all known, communities that as soon as someone like Thomas would express this kind of doubt, this kind of question or concern, the response is to we need to keep that doubt at bay. We need to keep that away from all of the other people because it might infect the rest of the faithful We've all seen this play out. 
So, again, I know and you know a lot of people like Thomas. That because they don't trust other people, they don't know how to worship with them or live with them and have life together with other people. And this doubt that is not inherently bad starts to transform into stubbornness in our hearts. And this is what Christian community is. A bunch of people showing up over and over and over again. Some of them doubting, some of them believing, some of us full of faith, and some of us here needing the faith of other people. And what we experience as we keep showing up over and over and over again is that as we welcome those who feel defeated and we learn to join ourselves to those who are walking in victory, as we learn to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, what we find on the other side is love and a blessing. This is what Thomas and the disciples and Mary and Elizabeth model for us, that they just keep showing up together, even when what's happened in their world doesn't make any sense. When Mary shows up to Elizabeth, the spirit is present and it sparks this song of praise on Mary's lips. When Thomas shows up to the disciples, Jesus appears in the midst of them and says immediately to all of them gathered, peace be with you. And what we see in Mary's song and what we see in Jesus' announcement of peace is that they are one and the same. That this is what the peace of the Lord, ruling and reigning in the world, this is what it looks like. It looks like mercy on those who fear him. It looks like bringing down the powerful and lifting up the lowly, filling the hungry with good things. Everything between us and God and one another is brought to peace to appropriateness. Peace is the word that Jesus offers to the doubters and those who are hiding in fear and those trying to make sense of what it means that Jesus is alive. The first word is peace. Before he drives them out into ministry, before he commissions them out into the world, he settles them. Just be at peace. Except that I'm here with you and you're here with one another and that I want you here with each other. And it's only after he's spoken this word of peace to all of them that he turns and he gives to Thomas the thing that he was longing for. Exactly the thing he was asking for. He says to him here, see my wounds, touch my hands, don't doubt but believe. And notice that there's no rebuke of Thomas here. He doesn't say, Thomas, you were wrong to doubt. See, here I am. He gives him what he asks for. You want to touch me? Touch me. You need to see my wounds here. Place your hand in my side. And then Jesus says to him, you believe because you've seen. But more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This is the oddness of this text, the difficulty of what we hear today, that we are somehow in a better position than Thomas because we are the ones who have believed but have not seen. Remember, Thomas has said to the other disciples, I can't believe what you've told me. I can't hear your witness. 
Yet what Jesus insists is that the witness of others is actually greater than seeing. Somehow we are here and we are more blessed to hear this story of Thomas, to be able to read the gospel of John than to have had the same kind of experience that Thomas had. This is part of the mystery of faith, that when we demand to see for ourselves, what we're invited to do instead is to be with one another. When, like Mary, the Lord gives us a word and a promise that we don't know how to make sense of, we rush toward one another and we find a blessing in the midst of our need. And as we present ourselves to one another, Christ is made known to us. Being together is the way that Christ is present to us. Here's the other side of that coin, and I'm wrapping up. That while we insist we are somehow better off than Thomas, because we believe yet we have not seen, we have to be careful not to write off Thomas. I love calling doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas, not because I want to emphasize his doubt, but because we should acknowledge the way that we need his doubt. Gregory the Great, Pope from 1,500 years ago, he says that God did more good through the doubt of Thomas for us than through the faith of the other disciples. Sometimes the greatest good that God does in my life comes through someone else's questions, comes through someone else's doubt and uncertainty. And what I need and what you need is to be the kind of people who leave room for that person in the community. Because I might need Thomas's doubt, and that doubt might do more good for me than Peter's witness or Andrew's witness or John's belief. We have this story of the resurrection because Thomas doubted. Father Chris, you were the first one, I think, to tell me about this. And so if I get this all wrong, just come up and fix it. There's this uh, old legend about the Apostles' Creed that each of the disciples, the creed that we say each week, there's this legend that each of the disciples actually speak a line of that creed. Each of them gets to write one line. And is that right, generally? Okay, we're tracking. It's a legend. (laughs) And in all of those legends, Peter, of course, is the first one to speak. He's the first of the disciples, and so he's the one who tells us we believe in God. And then all of these other lines, they get all mixed around with who gets attributed to saying what. But the only other consistent legend is that Thomas is the one who insists on the resurrection. Thomas is the one who says, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Thomas, because he doubted the reality of the resurrection, is the one who is able to have it confirmed And now for us, the one who emphasizes and insists on the resurrection the most strongly is the one who doubted. The one who asked the hard question, who owned for himself and for his brothers and sisters, I don't believe it yet. He is the primary witness to Jesus Christ as the resurrection and the life and the reason that for 2,000 years, We have confessed we believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
This is why we have to insist that the church sanctuary is not just a community about life. We are a community about life after death. The life that's made possible only through death. We insist that faith is not about certainty, but about the richness that an openness, even in the midst of our doubting and hard questions, makes possible for us. And that openness is crucial because Thomas's doubt in the midst of the other disciples gives way to the other disciples being able to peer in and to watch how Jesus responds to Thomas. This is the kind of community we have to be. The ones who let our fears and our anxieties and our questions be spoken and known because there are others here who are waiting, who are peering in, who are watching, hoping that as we let those fears be spoken, we will see how God responds to us. A community like that looks like us becoming like Elizabeth's, a place of safety, a place of sanctuary for those in whom God is birthing something new, even through their doubt, and even through their fear, and even through their uncertainty. People are watching, peering in, waiting to see what God will do. Amen.